Welcome to the Philocrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy podcast. I am really excited to welcome Casey Denolfo, the Mike Daly head coach of Tufts University. Um, Casey, fired up to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. Great to be here with you. Uh, as I told you in the pre-interview, I'm a huge fan of the Philacrosophy podcast, so uh, really an honor to be on here with you, for sure. Yeah, well, I'm really fired up to talk about you and talk about Tufts Lacrosse. I mean, what an unbelievable and iconic program. Um, and I think so many people want to know like how you guys have done it and how you've sustained it and everything from culture to how you play and philosophies. Um, really fired up about it. Uh, just so everybody knows, Casey's in his seventh season. Um, they've won the NESCAC championship 2018, 2019, 21, 22, been in the NCAA final four in 21 and 22. And Casey, by the way, is a tough grad. I learned this, uh, pretty awesome fun fact that you were a three sport athlete at Tufts. And you actually threw a touchdown pass, scored a goal, and scored a bucket in hoops. Um, that's pretty sick to be a three-sport athlete in college. It's hard enough to do it in high school. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, I love being part of a team. And, uh, you know, as I tell people, I probably should have spent a little bit more time in the classroom. Um, but I think it all worked out in the end. So, yeah, no it, was, it was fun for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Casey, we got we to gotta just um, dial it back to uh, 20, 2010 or 2009, maybe. When I actually met you, I think, um, down in Baltimore, I think you were studying. I don't even know what you were studying, but I was launching 3D lacrosse back then. Andrew McDonald, your former uh, teammate and buddy, and my former player at Denver, introduced us. And uh, I was getting this 3D lacrosse spring break going, and I think you were tapped at the time. Um, to talk a little bit about how your Taft experience kind of primed you for your college coaching experience it's, it's not a, a normal route but it really worked yeah it was it was essential actually um I mean I think my Taft experience was key just because you know I got I got the job I was 23 um the Taft program at that time was not competitive there there was a history of you know really successful teams at Taft especially in the early 2000s late 90s and uh when I took over in the spring of 08 it was my second year at Taft. I'd been the assistant the year before, and we were so bad that they were basically just like, hey, do you want this job? <laughs> you know, because uh, I don't know how many other people would have wanted it. And I, I took it over. And, you know, when the expectations are low and you're young, you know, you're sort of willing to try anything to figure out what works. And, you know, without a ton of pressure, a ton of outside pressure, obviously, because I put a lot of pressure on myself, but without a lot of outside pressure, you can try a lot of different things and figure out what works. And, you know, you're able to figure out kind of who you are as a coach, what type of culture you want to build, X's and O's wise, what works, what doesn't, and uh, really start to figure out, you know, how to coach. And so those nine years as the head coach at Taft were key, not only because I was starting to figure out how to coach and what worked and what didn't, but we played against some pretty excellent competition, uh, game in and game out. So you figure out, you know, how to game plan against a guy like, you know, Rob Pinnell or Ryder Garnsey or Miles Jones, uh, Matt Cavanaugh, 
um, you know, you can pretty much start the game plan against anybody. So uh, that that was pretty key for me as a coach. Um, and then I also coached football as well. And uh, I was the offensive coordinator on our football team for, I think, eight out of the 10 years I was coaching and got to coach with some pretty phenomenal people and just learned a lot about being a leader and being a coach and how to work with young men. Um, and sort of all those things kind of spilled over when I got the Tufts job. And, you know, I've, uh, I've been able to, to draw from those experiences at Taft to, you know, really make me a better coach and a better leader and a better culture builder. Very cool. It's really interesting, too, because I'm, I'm really into this concept of the constraints-led approach and, and everything that I try to do as I think about coaching and development. But, you know, you had this path of being thrown into the leadership role right away. And, and, and me, on the other hand, I was an assistant coach for like nine or 10 years or something. And there's probably benefits because there's constraints and good and bad both ways. Um, but what you really had to do was figure stuff out. And there was nobody to sit there and just learn from. And you had to make the buck stops with you as the head coach. Um, how did you sort of navigate that and also, you know, learn the stuff that you didn't really know and how much progress did you make over the course of those eight years as far as just really understanding the game? And, and yeah, that, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, well, you learn humility when you take over a, a bad program, um, or I should say a, a program with a bad record, um, you learn humility really quickly. Um, you learn really quickly that it doesn't matter how good of a coach you are, that if you don't have a good culture and you don't have, um, you know, strong enough players that, you know, you got to You got to get those two things going. Um, and I also had the benefit of being um, a head coach in lacrosse and also an assistant coach in football. So I was, you know, in the fall learning how to coach, um, you know, from a lot of different perspectives. And then also then you, you know, you pick up some things here and there and you sort of try to implement those as a, as a head coach in the spring. Um, you know, as you know, as being a head coach, there are certain things that you deal with as a head coach that you never have to deal with as an assistant coach, um, good and bad. So, you know, being a head coach, I think, is key in learning, you know, how to have the really hard conversations, the really difficult conversations, um, dealing with all of the minutia and the administrative stuff um, while also trying to coach. And so, you know, that was I mean, that was huge. And then, you know, after our, my first year as a head coach, we were four and ten. Um, we had a lot of work to do. And then I really just started trying to reach out to people and learn as much as I could, um, you know, picking people's brains, trying to work as many lacrosse camps as I could in the summertime, learn how to recruit, you know, it didn't matter which sport you coached. I wanted to learn, you know, what you did as a recruiter, as a head coach, what you did to build your culture, um, and really still try and do that today as best I can, just because I don't, I don't really know that much at this point. Um, and so I'm always just trying to learn. So I, I think, you know, from a, for me, it's so much more from like a cultural standpoint, because, you know, X's and O's wise, if you have good enough players, you can kind of do whatever you want offensively, defensively, yeah. but it's always, all right, how can we continue to build our culture and recruit better players? And that's going to help us continue to improve our program. You've mentioned the word culture, you know, about five or 10 times here in the first five minutes of this call. Let's talk about that. Um, obviously, Tufts must have had a great culture under Mike Daly, and you had massive shoes to fill. Um, how did you sort of install your own, put your own fingerprints on the program? And how do you think about culture 
you know, both from a transition perspective and, and, and sort of now? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I find myself or count myself as being incredibly fortunate, um, not only to play for, for Coach Dales, but also to follow him, you know, certainly massive shoes to fill, but, um, you know, good problems to have to take over a successful program with outstanding players. But also, I think the most important thing in taking over that program is the culture was just out of this world. And, you know, again, he had been there for 17, 18 years. Um, and, you know, you can appreciate this as a head coach. And I know any other head coach that's listening to this knows how, you know, culture takes time to build. It's not a two or three year thing. Um, it's, you know, now going into my seventh year, I, we just graduated my first recruiting class. And now is really when I start to feel like, you know, this is, this is my program. Um, you know, and it's really not until year seven where you start to feel that way when your first group gets through. But, you know, we've really tried to hang on to a lot of the main tenets of the program. You know, we want to be hardworking guys. We want to be humble. Um, we want to be physically and mentally tough. We want to love the program. We want to make sacrifices for the program. Um, you know, we want to leave it cleaner than we found it. So I think all of those tenets were true when I was a player there. I graduated in 2006. Um, and then we just try and put our own sort of individual marks and stamps and figure out ways that we can that we can improve it. Um, but I think the most important thing when we're building our program is to build it with the guys. Um, I saw a great quote the other day, uh, you know, from Nick Saban, SEC Media Days, and uh, you know everybody was shocked. They were, he was like, yeah, last year was a rebuilding year for us. You know, they had the Heisman Trophy winner. They won the SEC East or West. I'm not sure which side they're on. You know, they make the BCS. Um, you know, he called it a rebuilding year and everybody is, you know, sort of shocked. And, you know, I feel like we rebuild every year. You know, you have a different group of guys. You have uh, different personalities. You have different strengths. You have different weaknesses. And for us, we're trying to always highlight the strengths of our culture. We're always trying to rebuild the weaker, weaker part of parts of our culture. Um, you know, we're always trying to bring new things in that we think work with our culture. So we are constantly in a state of rebuilding and always trying to be the best version of ourselves. And I think there's a lot of humility in there. And, you know, I think what that leads to is the guys understanding that you can't be satisfied with where you're at. Yeah, we've made the final four the last two years. That's not the standard of the program. The standard is to win the national championship. So there is very, very little complacency in our program and also understanding that we're just always trying to get better, always trying to be the best version of ourselves. All right. So I want to get back to culture, but I want, I want to ask a specific question about NESCAC rules for off season and fall ball real quick before I ask my question, what are you allowed to do with your team in the off season for fall ball? Yeah. In a standard year, we are not allowed to be on field with our guys. Okay. Um, the last two years have been a little funky because of COVID um, where we have actually been able to have fall ball with our guys. Um, and there are some real pros to that. Um, but there's also, you know, again, it's not up to the guys, you know? Yeah. So every other year that I've been here, besides the last two, the guys have been on their own for captain's practices. And, and so there's been no that perfect. That's what I thought. And is it going back to those rules for this academic year? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So the question is, cause I remember, I remember, you know, thinking about this, you know, it's back to this constraints led approach. I mean, the coach is a constraint. Um, you know, hopefully a good one, but 
not having a coach available is an amazing constraint too. It shapes your team and the leadership and the culture. How, how important has that been for your team actually to, to, to develop with, with the guys taking the leadership and not the coach being the center of the uh, um, coach centered? It's been everything. Uh, it's been, you know, the reason why we're a successful program, um, you know, because those guys realize that, you know, and again, this this doesn't hurt my ego because I understand it. But like we as coaches are not that important, you know, especially in our league where, you know, our first practice is February 15th and our first game is March 1st. You know, that's two weeks for us to, you know, put in X's and O's. And, you know, that's just not that much time to get ready for a league game. So, you know, those guys uh, understand pretty quickly like, hey, this is on you. You know, if you want to be successful, this is on you. Um, you got to build those standards. You've got to you got to enforce those standards. No coach is going to be there in the off season telling you do this, don't do this, hold this guy accountable, don't hold this guy accountable. So if you want to be the best version of yourselves, like that's on you guys to figure that out. And then once we get into the season, you know they've already built up those habits, so it's much easier for them to enforce those rules and standards than you know all of a sudden they're looking at us and be like, okay, now it's your turn to do it. No, like that's on you. You got to do it. So you guys have captains already leading into the year and the captains basically organize your roster. How big is a roster? This past, the past couple of years we've been between like 50 and 55. So pretty big roster, a lot mm -hmm. of management for those kids. It is. And they run and they run practices on their own. How often will they get out there? Uh, full, full captain's practice will usually be Thursdays and Sunday nights. Cause that's when there's no class conflicts. And so when they get out there, they just have the field, they get the lights and they just run their own practice. Pretty, pretty that's, amazing. And then how much do they, do they, do they try to, you know, you know, do, obviously they're probably trying to do what you guys normally do. Right. I mean, so they're, they have, they have an understanding. I'm not sure how much you're allowed to talk to the captains. Are you allowed to have meetings with the captains and just sort of share with them your thoughts and the directions you want to go or, you know, drills that you might want to run or offenses that you want to do, or is it really all on them? It's really all on them. And I think that's the really cool thing about the fall is there's a, you know, there's a ton of back and forth, um, you know, with us and it's very, you know, we are, I mean, literally, we don't tell them what to do. Um, you know, I think that's the really cool thing is they start to figure out, you know, based on where they are in the year, um, how much schoolwork they have, how much, you know, they need to work on, you know, man up, man down, riding, clearing, offense, defense. It's really cool for them to make adjustments on their own. Um, you know, it's, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, this is the offense that we ran last year. Like, if you want to run that, great. If you want to try something else, that's great, too. You know, it's going to give our defense a different look. It's going to give different types of players, different types of looks. It's going to give us more versatility, um, you know, and, and more options on offense. Um, so that's really, it's really on those guys. And, you know, as far as my understanding is, is like, they'll do some drills, but they'll do a lot of playing, you know, and I think you can appreciate that. I mean, I love your, your three by stuff and like, there is so much benefit to just playing lacrosse. I mean, it's truly pick up lacrosse. And so yeah, that gives them the opportunity to try things, you know, and figure out what works and what doesn't work. So, I mean, I'm always a fan of just getting out there and, and playing rather than just running these constructed drills all the time and, and ad nauseum. So I'm a big fan of just getting out there, playing, getting up and down, figuring out what you can do and what you need to work on. Yeah. So interesting. Um, and I, I can imagine that it, it just translates into 
you know, what every coach wants, which is, you know, uh, game awareness and the communication and the leadership on the field, because normally the coach just takes that role to, to accomplish what the coach wants. And here the coach isn't there. And, and then, and then you're like left with, well, you guys aren't talking, <laughs> but now it's like, I mean, the communication probably uh, with your program, being that there's just leaders that figure it out must just be, you know, um, a huge part of the, su the success you've been able to have that leadership in, in on-field stuff, just decision-making and recognition. Yeah. And again, I mean, Jamie, I think you can appreciate this. You coached in Denver. It's cold. It's windy uh, for certain parts of the year. Like those guys can't hear us out on the field. Yeah. You right. know, like if we're playing a game in the middle of March on Bellow field, like those guys can't hear us. So, yeah. you know, we can yell and scream as much as we want on the sideline, trying to tell them what to do, but they can't hear us. So at the end of the day, like they're, they've got to build those habits to figure out what they're doing on the field without our help. So again, I try and put my ego aside as much as I can and just realize like, Hey, like these guys got to figure it out on their own. How much do the guys get out um, in smaller groups on their own to do stuff? You know, like, I mean, obviously with 55 kids, um, not everyone's going to be getting as, as many touches or runs um, while the, the free play is the ultimate context in a full field game. Maybe do they get out and do, or do the, you know, are there smaller groups that, that get out there on their own and do stuff? Yeah. That, I mean, that's constant. I think that's a, a big function of the academic calendar. You know, uh, I think for our guys, they try and get to spots um, in smaller groups whenever it fits their academic calendar. So, mm. you know, there's shooting groups, there's, you know, our D middies work together, you know, our goalies are constantly, you know, goalies are some of the smartest guys on the team. So they really have to try and find windows when they can get shots in. And then obviously, you know, like our guys are always like, yeah, we'll get more shots in, you know what I mean? So um yeah that's that's totally on them and that's happening constantly in smaller groups just based on when they can actually get down to the gym and do it how about um strength and conditioning are you guys allowed to actually have lifting stuff like that or is it on them do you have a strength coach how does that work yeah we have we have two strength guys um that are with us year round they're uh dan Copso and Alex O'Keefe, who are just outstanding. Um, you know, they push our guys physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, we work pretty closely with those guys. Um, there's a lot of back and forth there. Dan was the strength guy when I was a player. Um, he was the football lacrosse guy when I was there. So he and I are very close and we have very frank conversations with each other about what we want and what we need. Um, it's mostly him telling me what our guys need and not the other way around. But um, you know, he's been very open to trying new things. And I think that, you know, we are not as strong as we used to be and I'm okay with that, but we are, you know, trying to minimize catastrophic injury. We are trying to be, you know, better conditioned. We're trying to be more explosive. We're trying to be more dynamic. Um, you know, those are our goals when we, when we do strength and conditioning and not just how good do we look in the mirror? Love it. Um, okay, so let's transition this conversation into talking a little offense. I mean, you guys score goals at just like a historic rate. I mean, at one point, I think before the COVID lockdown, you guys were averaging 25 goals a game. Yeah. Uh, and I know that, you know, when uh, Coach Kerwin uh, joined Coach Tiffany, he, had, he brought his philosophy that they've kind of continued down to Virginia. And obviously, Coach Daly has continued his, his philosophy um of playing fast but how would you uh describe the way Tufts plays offense and transition and and, and generally sc score goals yeah I think it's 
Yeah, I, we play fast um, for sure. You know, I think we are, we're relentless. Um, you know, we're relentless in practice. We're constantly going to the hoop. We're constantly attacking. Um, you know, this year we scored 446 goals, which is the most goals all time, any division in a single season. Wow. Um, and, you what know, broke our own program uh, just over 20. I think we were like 20.4 wow. goals per game or something like that. Um, you know, and, you know, we're our goal. I sort of think of it if I'm like, I'm, I'm a big pickup basketball guy. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not as um, I don't have the endurance that I used to when I play pickup basketball. And so I think about if I'm playing pickup basketball, if I'm allowed to rest defensively. I'm pretty good. You know, I get back there. I can catch my breath. I can figure out, you know, where I need to help. I can figure out where my guy is. If I'm playing against a younger guy in pickup hoops, who's like 24, 25, and he's just buzzing up and down the court, all of a sudden I become a pretty ineffective defender. And so if you think about that, you know, as an offense, you know, how can we replicate that on the cross fields? And, you know, same thing. If you go back to pickup hoops, if you know that, you know, they've got two shooters, you know, and one inside guy. Well, you have a, you know, you can start to, and then a couple, you know, kind of wing players. Well, you can start to, you know, game plan for that and figure that out. Um, but if all of a sudden everybody can shoot, everybody can slash, everybody can play inside. Now you're in real trouble defensively. And so for us, you know, teaching our LSMs how to play offense, how to play transition offense, how to play settled offense teaching our D middies how to do all of the different things, teaching our O guys how to play defense so that they can be back there on D and then create transition offense, um, how to attack in number situations. All of a sudden, I think we become a lot more difficult to defend when everybody can do everything. Um, so I start to think about kind of, you know, how does it bleed into other sports and what gets really effective in other sports and how can we replicate that out on the lacrosse field? All right, so how do you look at shot selection within the scope of this relentless pace um, where everybody seems to have a green light? Yeah, I, I think, and that's, I think the cool part about practice for us, you know, I think for practice for us, it's, we don't really get on guys too much about, you know, quote unquote, bad shots, because, you know, pretty much every individual session that those guys do every small group session, every fall ball, excuse me, captain's practice, every, you know, practice we have is sort of a heat check for our guys and to try and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Like the only time I'll ever get on a guy about, you know, a shot is if it's a shot that I haven't seen him take in practice, you know, um, Jack Boyden, uh, you know, rising senior for us, um, I think his, his sophomore year, he had like 12 points. Um, and then this past year, he had 133. Hmm. Uh, he had 86 goals this year, played attack for us. I only got on him one time about a shot in a game, and it was a, you know, running, running like behind, I think it was like behind his hip, like sort of like sort of backhanded shovel hand shot. And it was like, it wasn't in theory, like it wasn't a, bad shot it was just I'd never seen him do it before mm -hmm. and JB scores in a million different ways and it's like JB like don't take that shot like I've never seen you practice that shot before and I see you practice all the time like take shots that you know you're going to score on so 
I think there's a lot of that, you know, teaching the LSMs how to shoot, teaching the LSMs how to play inside and just helping guys understand like what their range is and where they are the most effective shooting from. What about um, possession? So, you know, what if it's a game you're not winning faceoffs? Can you play this way? Or do you kind of have to be able to win faceoffs to be able to play this fast? Um, it helps when you win faceoffs. Uh, you know, in 2021, which was the kind of like we started late because of COVID and, you know, won our conference and made it to the final four, we were only fa- we were facing off at less than 50% that year. And uh, last year in 21, and we still, I think we were at like t- a little over 21 goals a game. Um, you know, there are adjustments that you can make defensively. You can be more aggressive. You can be more aggressive in the ride game. Um, you can mix in some 10 man, you know, there are ways to, to up the tempo, um, and just create more transition that way. Um, but yeah, for us, like we want to, we want to push this tempo regardless of, of whether we're winning faceoffs or not. Um, you know, because if teams are what, what teams normally want to do against us is they want to control the pace of yep. the game. Um, and so they have a certain amount of control over that in terms of how long they hold the ball, but they can't control how we play them defensively. Right. So if we push out and, you know, be more aggressive, then all of a sudden we speed them up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of teams don't want to play faster. Um, so we can force them into some decisions that they don't want to make. Um, and if they're scoring goals or, you know, then that's fine. That's just more 50-50 balls for us. That's just more opportunities for us to ride the ball back and create more offense that way. Yeah, I was going to ask you about rides and pressure on defense. So um, how – let's dig in. You, you just said it, but how how um, how do you guys play defense? Do you, do you generally push out on adjacents and, and pressure the ball kind of wherever it is and stay on doubles? What are the kinds of principles that you use for your for your defense to crank up this level of play, particularly if you're not – you know, 50, 50, if you're, if you're losing face-offs, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've got a pretty long history of like outstanding defensive coordinators, obviously, you know, um, you know, our current D guy, Steven Toomey um, is, you know, I think one of the best defensive minds in the game and, you know, he's pretty multiple in what he does defensively and he's pretty outstanding in terms of identifying team strengths and weaknesses and uh, trying to expose those. Um, but overall, I would say, you know, we are very aggressive on ball. We're very aggressive with our slides. And actually this year we played, we had a really young inexperienced defense. Um, you know, we were playing a lot of freshmen. We're playing a lot of guys that hadn't played before. We graduated our top four polls, um, last year. And, you know, we ended up playing a lot of zone the second half this year, but we played a very aggressive zone defense um and it ended up working you know really well for us because you know we didn't just sit back and wait for teams to take shots we were able to be really aggressive in that and i think there's you know there's certain times you know depending on you know what their personnel is like yeah we will stay on doubles um but i think anything that we can do to speed teams up and get them to play outside of their comfort zone is things that are things that we want to that we want to try and do yeah i love that back when mac d was playing for me we, uh, we, we, we pressured a lot. And, and honestly, it kind of took us from, you know, from being a top 25 team to like a top 12 team. And yeah. um, even though people will score on you early, 
Um, they, they, when they, as soon as the game's close in the end of the third quarter, they might have a couple goal lead on you and they start trying to like, not you know, like you said, they try to start trying to control the tempo and control the ball. Then they start turning it over because you got to attack pressure and yeah. it's, it's, it, you really do. Um, so specifically, um, in that zone that you're mentioning, how did you, how did you pressure in that zone? Where were the shorties and, and what were the kind of the basics of that zone? Yeah, we played the, you know, again, it, that was kind of the cool thing too. I think about what, you know, coach Toom did is he, is he bumped the shorties around based on personnel. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so obviously if they wanted to attack from, you know, up top, or we felt like they had a really good, you know, guy down low, we would try and keep the shorties, you know, away from those guys. Yep. Um, but really try and kind of get them to go where we wanted them to go. Um, and I think that was, you know, based on, you know, some of the polls that we had, we felt like if we could get the guys, you know, out, you know, if, if we get the offense on our defenseman's mitts, we felt great about that. Um, mm -hmm. So we were always really good on ball, but off ball is where we struggled a little bit, which is usually where you're going to struggle with young defensemen. Yep. And by putting them in that zone and basically being like, all right, you got to be responsible for this area that actually freed them up a lot. They had to think a little bit less and they could be more aggressive. Um, you know, so I think for us, it was, you know, really like try to get them into a spot where they felt uncomfortable and then kind of jump them once they got into that spot that was that was really uncomfortable. So, you know, again, like I think for for a lot of teams, you sort of have, OK, this is like, you know, what their zone offense is, right? Like you watch film and you're like, OK, they've got one zone offense or they got two zone offenses. And you watch that and you're like, okay, like, well, we know what they're going to do yeah. offensively. Whereas Probably against man-to-man, -man, yeah, exactly. Man-to-man, -man, they have so many more options. Right. So we yeah. were really able to sort of figure out what teams wanted to do offensively against a zone. And then we were pretty easily able to game plan against that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the best, the best part of running zone defense is they run zone offense. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Let's, let's talk a little bit about riding. I mean, you mentioned 10 mans and stuff like that and pressure rides. Um, how big of a part is riding? You know, if you guys are going to play fast, I would imagine you just got to ride relentlessly as much as you're going to sort of push the ball relentlessly. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, teams, you know, really philosophically, teams don't want to get into a track meet with us, um, which I understand, like a lot of people don't want to play super fast. So, if you're not going to run against us, then we can be pretty fast in our, and pretty aggressive in our ride. Um, yeah. Cause then again, like you're, you're dictating the tempo of it. Um, so it's, you know, what's essential is our attackmen. I mean, it's, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but not only the aggressiveness of our attackmen, but where we want to funnel the ball um, you know, where we want to try and create, doubles um so it's really on those guys to you know sort of set the tempo there um and just a huge part of it too is the communication in our midfield um you know just in terms of our bumps trying to get the ball from one side of the field to the other and being having those guys be able to communicate think ahead and be able to get to those spots um, and basically force the defense into making longer and tougher passes than they want to. So how can we, how can we bump, how can we move to make it so that they don't have the easiest pass that they have to make a longer pass and have to make that longer pass under duress. So there's the attackman pressure, 
just to get those defensemen a little bit uncomfortable. But then there's also the midfield bumps that are essential to try and, you know, take away those easy passes. So you get down onto offense and you don't have a shot or you, you back it up or whatever. Now you're in six on six. What, how would you characterize the way you guys play six on six offense and how much two man game do you guys play? Um, we play a ton of two man game. Um, you know, as you know, you're, you're one of those sort of the original guys to bring it out into the field. Um, you know, I think you and you and coach Bates are really sort of the first two guys to bring, to bring the two man game and, and the pairs look out onto the field. Um, you know, our base offense is a pairs look. So sort of that like three, two man pairs kind of in that triangle around the field. Um, but we're very, very multiple in what we do in our pairs look. And then we also run a one, four, one. Um, we also moved into a little bit of like a two, two, two towards the end of the year. And then depending on how our pairs looks, you know, sort of change throughout the game, it could even look like a one, three, two at times as well. Um, and I think for us, you know, we practice so much two man game in practice and in our individual sessions and in the guys indie sessions that, as you know, it's just we're trying to build chemistry mm -hmm. so that those guys can understand how to come off picks, you know, where their teammates going to be, how to communicate, what to do on the backside, which is, I think, where you can be the most effective in that oh. pairs look and off ball. Um but yeah, I mean, just just pretty just pretty relentless and forcing the defense to have to deal with three, four, five, six picks in a possession can be pretty tiring for those to have, those guys to have to deal with. Totally. Now, when you mentioned off ball stuff, how much off ball two man are you looking at versus off ball actions, more like exchanges or the the you know the kind of cut and fade and stuff like that? Yeah, we we talk a lot about, and I think this is. You know, this goes back to um, kind of like the, the football, you know, sort of like my football upbringing is I was always a big fan of RPOs when like when we started my, my buddy Pano Bulgaris, who's the, now the head coach up at Phillips Exeter, um, when he and I were coaching at Taft together, we we started coaching like RPOs in like 2010, 2011, right when it started, you know, maybe right before it started getting like widespread popular. And really our philosophy was, you know, the defense is always wrong. And so we don't like to tell our guys, like, you have to do this. You know, you basically tell them, okay, like, this is what we think the defense is going to do. Here are your options. And it's the same thing when you're coaching a quarterback, you're coaching wide receivers, you're saying, all right, here's what we think the defense is going to do. You know, if the, you know, if the, if the DN steps down, you're keeping it. If the DN stays, you're giving it, you know, if, you know, the X receiver has, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one coverage, here are the three routes that you can run, here are the signals. If they're in cover two, cover three, here are the different options that you can do out of that. And that's very similar to how we approach off-ball two-man. Um, so whether we exchange, whether we seal, whether we, you know, go inside out, um, you know, whether we, you know, seal down and fold over a lot, whether we bring a guy in so that they establish the one slide and then pull them out. And now we've got a two on one on the backside. We really just want to give our guys options. Um, we'll show them film. We'll say, Hey, this is what they've been doing. And then when we get into the game, 
you know, just trying to have those conversations with the middies when they come off the field. Cause the attackmen recognize it pretty quickly because they're behind the cage. They can see everything that's going on. Yeah. But having those conversations with the middies when they're coming off the field, like, Hey, like, you know, they're establishing that one slide. You have a two V one on the backside. If you seal and fold, that guy's going to be wide open on the adjacent pass. Um, so really, I think like the biggest thing when we're teaching off ball is, you know, options, trying to execute those options and then just communicating throughout the game about what's working and what's not working. Yeah. I love it. I think, I feel like so many people kind of do that, but, but they just don't make picking and sealing and slipping as much of an option. And they sort of go with the, the cut and the fade or the exchange, which are fine, but it's just, um, they can be easier to guard, particularly the exchanges, than a seal. You know, all of a sudden it's like you got to guard that. It's an action that's getting somebody open. It's getting a two-on-one. You know, Correct. just like, just like the on-ball stuff. Um, how much do you work in your in your on back to on-ball two-man game? How much do you focus on the reads or the coverage solutions um, so that you can punish the defense depending on how they play it? Yeah, I mean it's. Uh... You know, the, it's a great question. Um, you know, again, we, we talk a lot about, you know, when you come off the pick, you want to be dangerous, right? You want to be a threat to score or to draw a slide. Um, you know, I think for us, kind of understanding that when you have the ball, right, like, and you're just playing 2v2, that's not necessarily the time that you're going to create a shot for yourself. Um, you know, where you're going to create a shot for yourself is how hard you're working off ball. Because if you're just playing straight up 2v2, the defense has like a pretty good chance of, you know, defending that pretty well and creating tighter windows or creating those tighter pocket passes to throw into. But if I can get a step on my guy and now I'm drawing an adjacent, well, now if I move the ball forward, there's going to be a longer approach. There's going to be a 2v1. We've got the defense moving. Um, and so I think teaching our guys that, yes, we want to come off the pick dangerous, but if you don't have a great shot, if you just have a good shot, somebody probably has a great shot. And we're always working from going from good shots to great shots. Um, so that's, I don't know if I answered your question at all, but really yeah. thinking about your pair and how your pair is working with the six guys that totally. are out there. Yeah, it's really not just a two-on-two. Two. You know, it's a Correct. six and, and yeah, the the, the the simultaneous actions become really, really hard. The only reason I was asking is because I, when, I, when I think about teaching two-man game um, and I think about explaining it, the goal is to get two-on-one. And so, meaning you can get two defenders on one offensive player, or sometimes it turns into – you know, that, that's one advantage. And sometimes you have a, a, a positional advantage where you have that step you're talking about. And now all of a sudden it becomes two offensive players against one defensive player. And that two-on-one doesn't mean you don't throw it to somebody else, <laughs> um, you know. But the idea of just trying to recognize, well, they're going under the pick, so, you know, we're going to try to shoot just like in basketball. Or they're going over the pick and we're going to try to bring them over the pick. Or they're switching the pick and we're going to try to hesitate in the middle and slip it. Uh, or they're hedging and stepping off and whacking us and getting under, you know, okay, well, that's kind of like a switch. And so I just was curious because I feel like there's, you know, you mentioned it, you could get five or six actions in a possession. 
and that doesn't include the, you know, that, that, that would be the on-ball actions you could get. The off-ball actions, you know, you could double that. And then it's like, okay, how many of these advantages, either positional advantage or two-on-one advantages, what's the percentage that we could get these advantages? Because if we can increase that percentage of advantages, we're, we're, we're going to end up getting better shots. Um, and that then comes down to your ability to recognize how they're covering it. When you pick, they have to cover it. They have to cover it somehow. And of course, refusing picks is just as important as using picks. Um, yes. Anyways, that's kind of where I where I was going with that. Yeah, I love that idea of refusing picks too. Um, and just again, because if you set a pick right, and it's like, all right, I'm a righty, you know, like they can sort of they can start to hedge that a little bit and start. But now it's all right. Now when I'm going to my left, how can I figure out? I think Jack Boyden does a great job of figuring out how we can get back to his right. Yeah, for a right-handed finish. And I think another thing for us too, and you, you know, this is like, okay, there's the initial slide, but then, you know, how quickly can you recover? So we're always experimenting with ways of how can we move the ball more quickly? Yeah. So we've really gotten away from dodge, roll away yeah, and pass the ball. It takes yeah. too long. Right? I agree. So pass forward behind the back, you know, shovel passes behind, and we, we practice that stuff. I mean, like we, pra- we teach guys how to throw behind the backs. People are just like, Oh, do behind the backs. Like there is actually like mechanical ways that you can throw behind the back better, you know? And like, we, we teach our guys that, you know, and once guys realize the mechanics of it in the same way that you can teach mechanics of shooting, like they become much more effective and accurate behind the back passers. And, you know, and just teaching guys like, listen, that's like, that's not fancy. It's just better. It's more efficient. It's just fancy because not a lot of people do it. And I'm not proclaiming like I'm some sort of sage and know what I'm, but it's just like, we're always trying to find ways where we can play a little faster, a little better, a little bit more efficiently. Um, And so, you know, again, like refusing the picks is another way too, because if they're hedging, depending on, and you know, this, like depending on where you set the pick, you might be able to refuse that and have a hands-free eight yard shot. Yeah. That's a huge advantage as well. Yeah. Well, the fundamental advantage of, of a pick is they can't equally guard you to the net and to the pick. So it really begins to teach the the deception. You know, you watch like Jeff T. I love watching that guy play, but the way way he looks in his posture. And if if he wants to use a pick, he kind of bounces and looks it off. And if he, you know, feels a little bit of pressure, he'll make it look like he's going to use it or Lyle, same thing. They, they just use this advantage of there's a pick in the way that you guys have to figure out. And generally, you probably don't want to switch, which means if you're going to try to beat me under the other side, I'm going to be able to, like, make you run that way and go the other way. And if you're going to try to push over this pick because that's what you're doing, I'm either going to be able to get a step on you to keep you honest or I'm going to roll back on you because you're overplaying me. And that that fundamental advantage of fundamental of deception is like one of the biggest upsides of running two man games. Cause, and it's off ball too. Like you basically learn how to look stuff off. And so back to your behind the back stuff, you know, when the players feel this and they, you know, it's more like you're just allowing them to do it. You know, you're not reducing, re, you're not this reductionist model of you have to do it this way. There's, you know, it's better because every situation provides a different opportunity. And so I, I love the way that you're thinking about this from a developmental perspective, as well as just pure X's and O's, it works. Well, and I think the other thing too, that, you know, whether it's Lyle or whether it's, you know, T or whether it's, you know, I mean, you go back to, you know, guys like junior, 
you know, and, and Gary, like those guys are, were so good and are so good at playing with pressure on them. Right. Like guy, like they're not hands-free when they're doing all that stuff. Like they're just used to playing with contact on them. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, the two man game really allows when you're practicing two man game is just getting comfortable playing with pressure on your body and understanding like when you do actually have a step when you, cause again, you come from the high school level, and really good high school players are always shooting hands-free, always making feeds hands-free, always dodging hands-free. And it's really difficult for those guys to understand. Like, and I, I remember the philosophy that you did with, with Mike Murphy from Penn. And he talked a lot about like, okay, like your hands free when you're like, when you're basically like past that guy's front shoulder, but he's still on you, mm-hmm. but your hands are free at that point, even though like you still look like you're covered. So I'm always sort of a big proponent of like, all right, how can we, you know, how can we replicate that physicality so that guys get comfortable making decisions while having physical pressure on them? Uh, And then, okay, now you have physical pressure on you. Now this is realistic to what you're going to see in a game. Like now what decisions do you make when you're feeling that physical pressure on you? So that's the thing. I mean, especially Lyle, like Lyle's never hands-free. Like he does all, and that was what it does. That's what, when he does the stuff that he does is even so much more impressive because he's got guys all over him when he's doing that stuff. I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable. Well, it's remarkable because he, he kind of doesn't have hands free and he kind of does. Right. And I would say right. that, that, that he actually finds windows of hands free and yep. he creates those windows through deception. So, you know, whether it's the team defense or your individual defender, they're going to defend whatever you do. I say this all the time to the athletes I work with. I'm like, they're watching everything you do. And when you're younger, you mentioned you're always hands-free. It's partly because physically you can just create the separation you need with your physicality, with your speed and your athleticism and your size. But when all of a sudden you don't have a massive advantage anymore, you're not just going to be hands-free because you stuck your foot in the ground. Now, some people kind of still can, but most people can't. And so therefore what you really need to do is the deception will allow you to, if they're going to check your pass or your shot or your dodge, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever check that may be, cross check, trail check, poke check, lift, hold, they will also check your fake. And once they've checked your fake, now you have a window. They can't check twice in a row. And that's, you know, what Lyle's so amazing at is finding those windows, but creating those windows through the deception, which kind of goes back to why two-man game is such a positive way to learn these things. Because I, I feel like it's one of the best ways to figure it out, whether it's hesitations, whether it's which way you're looking, whether it's pass fakes. I mean, you watch Lyle go underneath one hand to his left and then he gives a little backhand pump, draws a check, opens up and rips a shot. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he, he doesn't make it look easy. Um, but but there, but that is how he's doing it. And I, I feel like the deception piece is what really is the difference between good and great. And I think most, most of the time when I watch PLL games or college games and there's a goal scored or not, it was usually the, a, a deceptiveness to a play that created the separation and the opportunity to score the goal. Yeah, I I totally agree. And and the reason that the deception has to be there, I mean, I I had the last year, um, the beginning of the PLL season, they were doing training camp down at Gillette. So we, my staff and I shot down for the day and we got to see, uh, you know, Sean Kerwin and, 
you know, John Upgren, who was playing for the Cannons at that time and, you know, got to watch the Cannons practice and a Redwoods practice. And it gave me an appreciation for kind of like when you go to an NBA game and you realize how little space there is on mm. the field. You know, yeah. we were field level. We were like right off, you know, actually like right inside the sideline watching those guys go. And, you know, the more that you can, and I think this is why three by is great. I think this is why box is great. Is like the more you can teach those guys to play in tighter spaces, yeah. you know, the more that, you know, they understand that like deception is key and that, you know, even if you're covered, you're hands free at times. And I think that's why RIT has been so good. Um, you know, the last 10 years, particularly the last two years against us is that, you know, it doesn't matter how much pressure we put on those guys. Like they find ways to get hands free and get good shots off. So, you know, I think with our two man stuff, you know, ideally we want to try and get those guys into space in a game, but we try and give them a really tight space to play in at practice. So they have to work that much harder to create hands free opportunities and make decisions with a lot of pressure right in their face. So cool. All right, last topic. Let's talk about recruiting. Sure. Um, so the NESCAC timeline is on July 1, you get to sort of find out, you know, the reads from admissions and you can sort of make your offers. That's July 1 of an athlete's junior year. So going back from there, can you walk us through just a little bit of the timeline and then um, kind of where you see athletes playing? And then lastly, sort of generally what you're looking for. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's, I think there's pros and cons to the July 1 date. Um, you know, a pro is certainly that we get three full years of academics to bring to admissions. Um, and admissions does a good job of turning that information around to us and giving us a pretty accurate read if the kid's going to be um, admittable for us. And then obviously the cons are if you really like the kid, you can't you know, you can't act until July 1 in terms of offering the kid a spot or promising the kid a spot or anything like that. So um, I think those are sort of like the, the really quick pros and cons. And then if you want to talk about timeline, um, if we back up, so let's say, let's, let's talk about the 24s, for example. So, you know, if you're a 24 right now, you know, we can't offer you a spot as a 2024 until July 1 of 2023. So mm -hmm. it's almost a full calendar year until we can offer you a spot. So, you know, we, I would say probably like mid-July, um, you know, mid-July of 22 is when we'll start to look at those guys, you know. Um, all so right. end of summer, you're looking at the next class. Correct. I wouldn't say, it, not certainly not exclusively, not yeah. exclusively, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to like get a lay of the land. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's why I love going to recruiting events, you know, whether it's NLF or NAL or, you know, whatever. I, I love sitting with, you know, division one guys and being like, you know, if we're watching 24, so I'm like, I like that kid. It's like, well, so does Virginia. And I'm like, okay. So that gives me an, an idea of, okay, you know, is that kid going to be, on the board or is he going to be off the board or you know is okay i really like that kid oh well he's you know maybe looking more like he's a super high academic kid or he's not you know maybe a little bit lower academically or if we look at like a certain club team okay like their top three polls are probably going to be like acc ivy guys but maybe their fourth guy is going to be you know that perfect fit 
for us. Um, so we really just use sort of like the end of the summer to try and get a lay of the land of where that next recruiting class is going to look like and which guys are still going to be on the board. Um, you know, and then September, October, November, we really, we really dive deep um, with that, that class. We try and get those guys that we really like, you know, on campus if we can, you know, hopefully they're visiting Harvard and, you know, maybe they just want to stop by Tufts for an hour or they're visiting BU, you know, which is three miles away and they just want to swing by just so that they can see the, the difference between the two places, um, you know, and then obviously a lot of those guys come off the board in September and October. And then we can start to both broaden our search and add more names, but also try and get an idea of the 25 to 50 guys that we really like and try and get those guys on campus, find out more about them as people, find out more about them academically. Um, and then once we hit January, you know, we kind of go, you know, kind of late January, we like kind of go dark on those guys a little bit. We're like, hey, listen, like you got your season, we've got our season, you know, you focus on you and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick back up with you in May, you know, certainly let us know when you have new film, let us know, you know, how your grades are coming along. Um, but you know, we're, we're not really going to pay that much attention to you. Um, Cause we really want to focus on us and our guys. And then, you know, once we hit sort of the end of May, you know, that's when we will really pick back up on those guys and, really see which guys are still available at that point and start to sort of hone in on those like 15 to 20 guys that we really like, and then ultimately end up with a class, you know, of around 12. And, and when you get to June, how much of it is, um, you know, confirming and how much of it is, you know, finding a new stud that you didn't even know about? Well, hopefully it's a lot of the latter, um, you know, but it's, uh, it's both, um, you know, you, you, cause you're, you, again, you're going to offer the guys that you really like. Chances are you're not going to get all of them. Um, so again, I think, uh, myself and my staff, especially, you know, coach Toomey and this past year, coach Moreland, um, you know, before that Danny Murphy and John Sachs and John Upgren, um, were very good at identifying talent. And not only identifying talent, but also talking with high school and club coaches and figuring guys out. So it's very rare that we'll stumble across a kid in, you know, late June where we're like, who the heck is that kid? You know, because I think we do a pretty good job of identifying those guys. Um, but certainly we have two guys in this 23 class that we've committed that we didn't know anything about until June. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so, there's so many kids in so many so states. many kids. Yeah. So many kids. And, and again, the, you know, the, the football guys aren't playing fall events. The hockey guys are, right. you know, maybe they'll play one event, you know. So it's – I wouldn't say that we go into July 1 with 12 offers. We don't. Yeah. You know, we probably have 10 to 12 guys that we like. But we, we also want to, you know, see how it plays out a little bit and then leave our options open. And we always leave a couple spots open at the end of the summer you do. Uh, in the event that – yeah, like right, like right now we have – we really have two spots left. Uh, we have one offer out and this is, you know, mid August right now, late August, we have one offer out and then we have one spot that we may or may not use, or there might be a kid who, you know, comes along in November because he really wanted to go play football at Yale or Harvard. And, you know, he's a two sport kid. I mean, our captain in 2021, Jack Walton was, uh, was one of those guys. 
you know, really wanted to be a division one football guy and then ended up coming to Tufts and playing both. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's always, you know, always those multi-sport guys that, you know, that pop up late for us as well. If kids want to get in front of you and your staff, what are the best ways? What are the, you know, um, obviously you go to the club events, right. But, um, what about prospect camps and other showcases and stuff like that? Yeah, I would say that the most important thing that they can do is do well academically. Um, you know, we have in admissions, we have, we are not Alabama football. We have very little pull in admissions. So if a kid has a really good, you know, really good grades, good classes and good scores, that's the best thing that he can, that he can do for himself. Yeah. Um, if he really wants to go to Tufts, like if that's his number one school, a prospect day is the best way to do that because we will run you through our drills. You meet our guys, you get coached up on what we do and we try and see which guys thrive in our system. Cause some guys you might see at the club level and you say, eh, I don't know, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's not aggressive enough, he but then you bring him to Tufts and all of a sudden you put him through some of these drills that we run and you give him that freedom and creativity and they flourish in that yeah. system or a guy who you think, oh man, this guy's going to be great. And you bring him there and he looks like a deer in the headlights. Um, yeah. So that's really, I would say the best way, but we also understand that that's not feasible for, for all kids. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, maybe play two or three individual events and then do your club stuff slash high school stuff. I mean, I'm always a big fan of kids playing NHS LS or anywhere that they can go and play with their high school team, because then we can see how you play in a system yep. and where your coaches see you as a player. That's like best for like defensive middies, LSMs, yep. um, off ball guys, you know, that's right. where those guys really thrive. And that's, I mean, every year I make a point of spending as much time as I can down at NHS LS so I can see kids play with their high school team. Yeah. Because to win games, you have to play as a team and um, high school teams generally play way more as a team than the clubs and certainly more than showcases. For sure. And also like, I mean, again, another thing, like another intangible is like, do your teammates like, you know, like, yeah. like if you score a goal, if no one's running up to you to celebrate, like you're probably a dick, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, like, it, or maybe, or hopefully you do it so often that they, they're like, Oh man, I can't even celebrate with this guy so much. It's his eighth goal, you know? So, yeah, yeah. but it's pretty easy to tell which one is which. Um, so, yeah. You know, so and then like every time you make a play, you know, we, we got a kid who just graduated, this kid, Matt Lane, LSM. Um, and I didn't, you know, he played for Lancaster Country Day School, so they didn't really play NHS LS. But I went and saw him play. It was like a hundred degree day. He was playing for Dukes at something at, you know, Cedar Park or some, one of those random fields in Baltimore. And his he never stopped. He was going up and down the field full speed. And every time he did something well, the sideline exploded. Mm. His teammates loved him. You know, and he was like, everybody on his team was committed to division one. He wasn't committed yet. He was a super, you know, super strong academic kid, but his teammates loved him. And, you yeah. know, those were some intangible things that, you know, that don't show up on a highlight tape, you know, and he ended up coming here, being an incredibly hardworking guy, ended up you know, being a captain his senior year and being an academic All-American and raising $80,000 a year in November and, you know, shaving heads for cancer research. And, you know, those are the things that don't come across in an email or don't come across in, in a highlight tape. So, yeah. you know, just trying to get, you know, 
events where you're playing with your team and you can showcase some of those intangibles, I think are, are essential. And those intangibles are what build that tough culture, you know, being able to have those things. Well, yeah. awesome stuff, Casey. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time on a summer day to, to do a podcast with me. Yeah, Jamie, this has been fun for me and I appreciate you, uh, you know, dealing with the leaf blowers and, and my son's iPad in the background. And, uh, you know, uh, anytime you, anytime you want to have me back on, I'd love to come back on. And I just love, I just love talking lacrosse with you. Cause I think you and I are pretty similarly minded on that stuff. So it's uh, love totally. what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing, man. It's great. Thanks, man. And um, let's, let's check in and talk lacrosse offline sometime. Sounds good. Appreciate right. it. Thanks for Thanks, having man. me. Take care.